Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 196 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Bionic Woman, an interview with Megan Bradshaw. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, there are superheroes walking amongst us, and we at Tick Bootcamp are constantly on the lookout for the superheroes in the Lyme disease community. And Megan Bradshaw is one of those people. For someone to go through all of the medical trauma that she's gone through and still have a positive mindset is really a very powerful and unbelievable phenomenon. Rich, Megan taught us so much, including external factors that can prevent you from healing from Lyme and how to overcome a series of these factors. She also talked to us about specific treatment protocols she started recently that have really been a game changer in her healing journey. More importantly, she talked to us about the overwhelming fear and anxiety that comes along with Lyme disease and the tool set she developed to help overcome that obstacle. Matt, it's very difficult to have a healing mindset when you feel like crap all the time, when your body's betraying you, when your friends are betraying you, when your doctors are betraying you. And Megan Bradshaw has gone through all of that, yet she's been able to keep a positive mindset. And she is really a powerful force in the Lyme disease community and a wonderful model for our community. So Matt, without further ado, I'm excited to introduce the bionic woman, Megan Bradshaw to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Megan, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am stoked to be here. We are really excited to have you here as well. You are one of the superheroes that we've targeted for a long, long time. And we finally have been able to drive our schedules with your schedules. And here we go. We're going to be starting uh, first, of course, Megan was sharing with us. Where do you live and where did you grow up? So I currently am living uh, in a suburb right outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I have spent about half of my life here. Um, but I also grew up in New Jersey. Um, I was born just outside of DC. Uh, we moved there shortly after my birth. Um, and when I was 10, we moved to North Carolina. Um, but I've lived all over the place. Uh, after college, I lived in Seattle for a bit and then in Nashville, Tennessee before I came back home. So talk to us about what your educational experience was like in your life was like first when you were living in New Jersey. Sure. Um, so when I was really young, I went to a Montessori school, which is a really hands-on, um, interactive learning experience. Um, and I loved, uh, I loved my school. I felt like when I transferred to a, um, Catholic school, I was kind of ahead of the curve. Um, I was, you know, showing a lot of promise with my reading levels and my abilities with math. I was kind of above par of where it was supposed to be. Um, and then I went to Catholic school growing up through fifth grade. Um, when we moved to North Carolina, I did start going to public school and that was a bit of a culture shock for me, um, moving from just 30 minutes outside of Manhattan to, um, kind of a suburb of a Southern city. It was a lot of change, but in hindsight, I'm glad that my parents did that for us because it helped diversify my experiences. So talk to us about what kinds of things you learned about yourself first when you were living in New Jersey, meaning what kinds of things were you pursuing and what was your vision for your future at that time? That's a great question. Um, So when I was really young, I knew that I wanted to kind of follow my dad's footsteps. He actually worked in the clothing industry and he was on the men's side of the business, um, kind of men's luxury wear. He worked for an Italian company. They did a lot of made to measure suiting. Um, and I know he loved his job and he loved working with people and I love the idea of working in fashion. Um, and so I wanted to follow in his footsteps, but not too closely. And so I had my sights set on working for a really big retailer that he had done business with for years, but I was adamant about not going into men's because I wanted to do my own thing and not follow my dad. 
You want to follow him, but not too closely. Exactly. So talk to us about what kinds of things you were doing at that early stage in your life to prepare yourself for this um, plan to follow in your father's footsteps, but then veer off on your own path. So I've always had a very competitive spirit. And so I was involved in, I, I was a dancer. I did competition team. I was a cheerleader. Um, I played tennis for a bit. Um, and I also really love leading people and I love serving people. And so I always took opportunities to get involved in leadership positions, um, in positions like student council, student government. Um, and that started as soon as I, I could run for something I was running, um, and, you know, led through college and then into my career when I, um, started working in the fashion industry. So where did you go to college and what did you major in? So I went to, first I went to Meredith College, which is a small liberal arts school for women in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, I really love the idea of having a really close knit environment, smaller class sizes. Um, and when I got there, I got super involved on campus. I was vice president of my class. I was involved on different councils. Um, so I really had a hand in a lot of things that were going on on campus and dealing with also um, people who were in leadership on campus. Um, that was a really great experience. And then I transferred to the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, I, I enjoyed Meredith for a bit, but I knew that it wasn't the perfect environment for me. I think I wanted something a little larger. Um, and so I ended up transferring to Charlotte um, and I studied organizational communication and I had a minor in political science. So now let's talk about uh, ticks and tick diseases, right? Mm -hmm. So you had this um, very supportive family. You had this uh, enriching educational experience, beginning with Montessori school, then Catholic school. You went to one of the top colleges in the country. Um, what did you learn either through your educational experience or through your cultural experiences with your family about ticks and tick diseases? So what's wild to me is that growing up in New Jersey, which is a hot spot for ticks, I really knew little to nothing. And um, I can think of so many times I love to be barefoot playing in the yard. We played in the woods behind our house. Um, one of our neighbors built a treehouse fort for us. So I spent a lot of time in heavily wooded areas, but I had little to no knowledge about tick safety. It was just something that um, I knew we had to check my dog for ticks but I guess we never thought to check ourselves. Um, I had a weird idea that Lyme disease made your skin green. Obviously that's not the case, um, but I guess in my youth, that's the association I made was because of the color and the name. <laughs> so other than being aware of the disease generally or hearing the name of the disease, you wow. had no information at all about Lyme disease nope. and you had no tools despite living in what we call the Lyme Belt for at least a portion of your life, which was in New Jersey, and then ultimately being sort of an outdoorsy gal during your during your life, you knew nothing about ticks, you knew nothing about Lyme disease, and you and you didn't take any steps to protect yourself from um, from getting sick. Nope, not at all. Which is painful to think about, but now that's why I'm really passionate about making sure others are aware and are doing preventative measures because it's simple things like, you know, spraying your bug spray with permethrin when you're going to play in your backyard um, that can prevent a lot of issues in the future. So let's talk about issues in your past. When did you start to show symptoms of what you now know to be Lyme disease? Meaning looking back, 
through your childhood in New Jersey, through your childhood in North Carolina, and then of course your youth as a college student. And we'll get to your get to your work experience in a minute. Um, when do you think you first started to show the symptoms of your of your tick disease or tick diseases? And um, and um, do you recall ever being treated for any of those symptoms? So the more I learn about Lyme and tick-borne diseases, um, the further back I'm able to go and pinpoint symptoms that were likely from Lyme and tick-borne illness. Um, so thinking back to like elementary school, I used to have really bad shin pain. We were told that I had shin splints, just, you know, try not to go so hard at practice or run or whatnot, take it easy, ice them. But in hindsight, I know that that was probably Bartonella. Um, I started having brain fog probably in like middle high school. Um, and so it just, it's interesting. Cause now I understand that all of these things that had seemed, um, just really weird, seemingly random, unrelated, were all part of this big picture issue. Megan, I want you to think about something else. Do you, thinking about your family, I know you're from a very close family. Do you recall seeing any of these same type of symptoms that you were experiencing in any other members of your family? So that's really interesting because that's been a hot topic in recent weeks. Um, I've been up spending a lot of time this summer with my family in New Jersey, making up for lost time since we hadn't been able to travel um, with the pandemic. And it's interesting because there's a lot of um, autoimmune diseases in my family. Um, and I can't help but to wonder if other people in my family also have tick-borne illnesses. Um, I actually learned that my grandfather had Rocky Mountain spotted fever as a child. And my mom, she has um, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And so it's just interesting that knowing that a lot of these things that can present like so many other autoimmune illnesses that are present in my family, um, the underlying culprit could be a tick-borne illness. So do you think it's, it's even possible that you may have, you may have received your uh, Lyme disease congenitally from your mother? It's possible. Um, I've asked my mom to get tested a number of times and she's a little stubborn, but um, maybe one day I'll, I'll do that just to unturn that stone and see if that was the missing piece of the puzzle. But um, one thing that I try to focus on is, you know, with this illness, you have very limited energy and I need to focus my energy on solving what's in front of me, not what's behind me. And I may never be able to piece together where and when I got bit, um, or how I contracted tick-borne illnesses. But, um, so I don't want to waste too much of my energy trying to figure that out because I think I could go up my whole life and probably never know, um, it's a big mystery. Well, let me ask you one more, one more question on this piece of, of mm -hmm. our discussion. Do you think it's possible that you may have some genetic predisposition where you do not have as strong an immune system and you would therefore not have as great a set of tools to protect you from a Lyme infection as perhaps other people? Yeah, I definitely think that there's something, um, you know, my case is a very unique one, like so many others, but, um, my, my thing is that a tick bite has turned me into a bionic woman. Um, and it's, I, it's just, it's interesting to think how it got to that point. Um, I see so many different orthopedic specialists. I see a different, you know, number of 
Lyme literate doctors. And it's very possible that it was just tick-borne illness, but um, we've also learned that I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder, which definitely predisposed my joints to going to crap. <laughs> um, but it's, it's interesting because it's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, and we're going to spend some more time talking about that when Matt takes over. I, I, I'm always critical of Matt when he's, when he's uh, taking over my portion of the podcast. So I'm going to have to stop here. And no, move not, forward, not, Megan. that's not true, Rich. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move forward, Megan, with our journey together with now you going on to your career. You graduate from college and you now begin your career. Talk to us about whether or not you were able to achieve your dream goal of working in the fashion industry. Yeah. So I was working for a really big box retailer. Um, I was working for Nordstrom and I started working there during college um, and I had a really great experience. I was working on the sales floor while I was in school, which is so much fun because I got a great discount and had a you know wonderful collection of clothes in my closet through college. Um, and I love that the company hired from within. And so I saw this as my opportunity to climb the corporate ladder. And I... Um, you know, I, I moved to Seattle um, in 2015 and it was really kind of when I went there that I started, you know, my steady decline. Things started getting really tough. And what was challenging was that as my career trajectory was progressing and as I got further along in my career, my health was really suffering um, at a rapid rate. Um, and so it got really tricky because I went from being able to, you know, walk down the hill and go to work. I was living in the city, you know, walk to work, be on my feet for seven, eight hours a day. And I had that stamina and, you know, could do the runaround and I had the energy levels, but then it was like at the flip of a switch and, you know, couldn't get out of bed, could barely move. Um, I was really struggling physically, you know, my fatigue was so bad and, I was having dizzy spells and having to sit down all the time and it interfered with me being able to do my work. And the challenging thing was like, my mind felt like it was there, but my body couldn't carry it along. Um, and so ultimately I had to take a medical leave and, um, I'm not able to go back to that kind of line of work anymore, which is okay because obviously I'm finding some other things that I am really passionate about, but it stopped me dead in my tracks. Like I was not able to perform at the level that I once could. And that was really, really difficult to accept. Let's pause there for a second, Megan, and talk about um, the parallel journeys that you're on where you, you were a person who had a passion for helping other people. You took responsibility for other people's challenges, and that was how you ultimately found joy. You believed that you could you could uh, fulfill that mission by working in the fashion industry, and you you achieved that goal. But at the same time that you're on these parallel paths of joy, your health is beginning to betray you. So let's let's walk through that together in a little bit more detail. So. Yeah. Talk to us about about um, what your experience was like at Nordstrom's, meaning you um, you had described yourself as someone who always wanted to help other people. That was your that was your calling through through your childhood and through your college experience. And now, how is that how is that being fulfilled for you at Nordstrom's? Yeah. So what I loved about my career with Nordstrom is that we were in the business of making people feel good. And, um, you make people, you know, have that confidence when they're walking out in something that they feel really good in. And, um, I was the manager in the lingerie department for a number of years, which is kind of like 
you know, setting the tone for your whole wardrobe and we get up close and personal. Um, and so I got to really connect with my customers and also I loved teaching and leading my team. Um, and so that was really fulfilling for me. I also specialize in the prosthesis department. And so I worked with a lot of patients who um, were breast cancer survivors who had had a mastectomy or a lumpectomy and, or maybe reconstructive surgery. And I would be able to sell them um, their foundations as durable medical equipment. Um, and so that was a really fulfilling part of my job too, because I was kind of going through my own health journey. So I was able to really connect with my customers who were also dealing with something on their own. Um, so it would just added another level to making people feel good. Um, we got to really connect on a deeper level. So Megan, one of the things that I'd, I'd like you to share with us is what you were learning at that stage in your journey that was going to help you later when you were on your own health journey. We interviewed a woman named Mallory Green recently. What mm -hmm. Mallory shared with us was that she learned that healing had to take place from the outside in, meaning when people felt good, that would create an environment where their immune system would be, would be better able to um, help them overcome their challenges. Talk to us about what you were observing at that stage in your career about people, for example, who had been suffering from breast cancer and had, had, uh, had to purchase a, a, a bra, a brassiere that would, would help them to look good and feel good and help them on their healing journey. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the challenges that I faced at that point was I was so set on my career. I, that was really what I wanted to passionately follow. And I was really career oriented. And so I didn't want to give that up, even though I knew that personally I was struggling because um, I was really fortunate to have lived most of my life, you know, almost, you know, very healthy person. I was very active. Um, I was able-bodied. And so trying to understand the changes that were happening, I didn't want to let go of what I had going on with my career. Um, so give us some more detail about those changes of what was happening with your body and how is it impacting your ability to yeah. help the people you were working with uh, in the fashion industry? Yeah. So, you know, the job is physically demanding and my most prominent symptom was um, inflammatory arthritis. And so I presented like a rheumatoid arthritis patient for many years. And I always joke that I'm physically 87 years old, but that's how I felt trying to go to work. And so I would barely be able to get out of bed in the morning. I would literally be laying in my bed, doing my hair and my makeup because just standing up at the sink was exhausting for me. It was too physically demanding. And so, you know, trying to get up and then get to work and retail's, retail's grueling. You know, you're unloading large quantities of merchandise and getting in really early hours and resetting floors and fixtures. And then you're, you know, customer facing and, you know, managing people and their performance. And when you feel like you have clouds in your head and you can't think straight and you can't focus on things that are in front of you and your body just feels like, you know, a dead weight and all you want to do is rest. Um, it's, it's just an uphill battle. <laughs> so Megan, as these symptoms are developing, while you're now pursuing your career in, in the clothing industry, are you visiting doctors? I am. So I had seen probably over a dozen doctors over the course of the years. And I maybe wasn't as aggressive to begin with because I was 
at a functional point that I could get out of bed and go to work. It was hard, but I could do it. And so I was seeing um, sports medicine specialists and orthopedic doctors because I had lots of fluid in my joints and they were really painful. I was seeing rheumatologists. I was seeing, you know, primary care. I went to an ER a couple of times. I had seen a GI specialist for a full workup, um, urologists, like every specialist I could see trying to figure out what the heck is going on because none of it made sense. And it was, you know, multiple systems in my body were being impacted by it. And so it was just hard to pinpoint. I didn't think in my mind that it could be caused by one thing. And it was hard to try to connect the dots. And so I had traveled to um, between uh, Vanderbilt University Hospital in Nashville. I was seeing some really great doctors when I was in Seattle. I traveled to Cleveland Clinic, to Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital here in New Jersey. And so I was all over the country and nobody ever thought to bring up Lyme disease. Megan, how were you developing symptoms affecting you socially, meaning uh, were you developing symptoms and the developing disability having an impact on your relationships with your family, with intimate partners and with friends? Yeah, it definitely impacted relationships. Um, my whole life, I was kind of a fly by the seat of your pants kind of gal. I love to be really spontaneous and do things whenever I felt like it. I was wildly independent. Um, I, you know, had moved across the country to a city I'd never been to and I didn't know anybody. And that was a fun adventure for me. And I loved being able to walk to work and I loved being able to, you know, walk back up to my neighborhood and meet my friends for happy hour after work. And slowly but surely I, I couldn't participate in those things. I didn't have the energy. I didn't have the stamina. I had so much pain and all I wanted to do was go home and just be in my bed because that was where I could be somewhat comfortable. Um, so it was challenging because I would want to go out and do normal things that people in their early twenties do, you know, socialize and over food and over drink and, you know, traveling. And I was constantly in pain. I had to make a number of lifestyle choices and it's really, it adds like a little bit of a challenge when you are trying to find social things to do with your friends, when you have dietary restrictions, when you don't drink alcohol, um, cause I was trying to be so regimented because I was worried that anything I was ingesting was making me sick at that point because I had, I had no idea. And so, um, it didn't stop me completely because I had such a will because I'm such a social person by nature, but from day to day, it definitely, my, my life changed drastically. So how did, how did the limitations the social limitations impact your relationship with your friends did you lose friends were they supportive what, what was going on with you socially so it's really difficult you know when i feel like we have so many things that we deal with in life that we're kind of conditioned we know how to react to we know how to react to death we know how to react to um you know almost like terminal illness people at least have a little more of an understanding of how to how to communicate about those things, how to support people through those things. But chronic illness, I feel like is really tricky because I'm going to feel like I'm dying, but it probably won't kill me. Um, and it's just something you have to manage for your life. And it was really difficult trying to explain to friends who maybe hadn't lived something like that firsthand 
or hadn't seen it firsthand from, you know, another family member or a friend. Um, and so I think a lot of people just didn't understand or even kind of had doubts about what was really happening because so many of the symptoms that you deal with, with Lyme are invisible. And so I understand how people could be questioning how legitimate is this? If today you can, you know, get up and go to work and go out to dinner afterwards or whatever, but tomorrow you can't move. And so Megan, at this point, you didn't have a diagnosis either. Right. So you couldn't tell your friends you had Lyme disease either. I mean, my friends, when we talk about it now, they're like, you always had weird stuff going on and we never knew what it was. And this is dating back at least 10 years. And so people always knew that there was something going on and it was bizarre, but for the most part, I had been pretty functional and it slowly declined. And when I found out I had been misdiagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, um, and at least that was a label that I could put on it. And that was something that my friends could Google. And that was something that they could try to learn about. And so they could try to support, but, um, at the same time, I saw my circle got really small. Um, I used to, I was, I was very social. I've obviously lived in a lot of different places. And so I am really lucky that I have so many friends all over the world. And my work colleagues used to tease me because I constantly, I had like a revolving door at my house. It was like a constant bed and breakfast, a flow of people coming to visit. And they're like, how many friends do you have? But you know, when you live in Nashville, it's a, it's a hot spot that people want to come visit for bachelorette parties and things of that sort. And so I constantly had somebody who was visiting, um, and things got really quiet when things got really bad. Um, and that was really, really hard to cope with because friends who had been, you know, wanting me to move closer to them for years, friends who I used to talk to on FaceTime all the time, who we had once been so close it was crickets and I felt abandoned a lot and it, it really hurt. But at the same time, like I was mourning the end of those relationships, but I was really fortunate that I had really great quality people who were entering my life, people who I met through the chronic illness community. Um, and even friends who maybe hadn't been so close with me in the past, people really surprised me at like who stepped up and stepped in and showed up for me. Um, and that was something that was really important that I realized like you can't beg people to show up for you if they don't want to. And you just have to appreciate the ones who do so much more. Megan, talk to us about your family and how they reacted to your developing symptoms and your developing yeah. disability. Um, so I'm really fortunate that my parents are very tenacious people. My mom had had her own health issues. Um, she has Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and she's had a number of surgeries. Um, and she spent about two and a half years in and out of hospitals. Um, and at that time she was being treated at Cleveland clinic while we lived in Charlotte. So when I was in high school for about two and a half years, I, I really didn't see my mom a whole lot. She was really, really ill. So it's nice because my parents have already kind of rallied together to get her to health. And so they did the same for me. Um, when I moved home, I had actually just moved home to have a surgery. Um, and I thought I was going to be returning to work in a few weeks and things went South and we can get into that if you'd like, but things got really bad, really quickly. I was completely immobile. I needed 24 seven assistance with virtually everything. And my parents did not quit. 
And even when I wanted to stop, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of being sick. When I was going through the throes of herxing and going through IV treatment, I wanted to throw in the towel a lot. I didn't want to keep going, but they're the ones who push me. Um, and I'm glad they do um, because on my own, I sometimes wouldn't want to do it, but they knew that it was what I needed and that something better was around the corner. Um, and I'm really grateful that they have gone to bat for me so many times. Um, you know, when I was struggling to find an accurate diagnosis, they were like, we're going to take you anywhere. We'll go anywhere. We'll find the best doctors. We're going to find the best surgeons. They were just determined to make sure that I would restore a better quality of life. Um, and so I'm really grateful for that. Um, I know how fortunate I am to have that kind of support system and I definitely don't take that for granted. So, so Megan, let, let's talk about your mindset at this stage, right? You're, you're losing your, your physical capacities. Yeah. You are losing your career that you had worked your whole life toward and you were dreaming about. You're now losing friends. The social butterfly is now starting to hear crickets rather than having a revolving door. Um, where, is, where are you emotionally? How is this impacting you emotionally and how are you dealing with that grief? Um, so grief is the perfect way to describe it because it's a cycle and it comes and it goes, especially when you're dealing with a chronic condition. Um, and so I spent a lot of time mourning the life that I've intended for myself. Um, you have to kind of master acceptance at some point. Um, and I realized I'm like, my life is not going to be the same. That's okay. What can I do now? Focus on the things that I can still enjoy. Um, Physically speaking, I'm very limited. Um, so I came home when I came home for that first surgery was I had a tear in my knee and I was supposed to be returning to work in a few weeks, but I knew that a few months down the road, I was needing bilateral hip replacement, but things went really bad. And I got to the point where my gait was so my, I mean, my hips were so severely displaced. My gait was so off. I could not walk at all. I could not bring my knees closer than shoulder width apart. Um, and so I was bedridden and I was just paralyzed by the amount of pain that I had. I was starting to lose function in other joints as well. Um, and so, um, you know, needing help with literally everything, pushing my hair behind my ears, getting a tissue, um, dressing, bathing, grooming, feeding. I mean, literally everything that you can think of, I had almost no use of my hands. Um, and so being able to have my parents to help me with everything has been a godsend. Um, at least now I have self-deprecating humor, which is what really helps get through this. Cause if we don't laugh, we cry. Um, and so I make jokes about well, I physically can't lift a finger. I never have to lift a finger again and do the things I don't want to do. So it's fine. We'll just take it as it is. Cause I don't have to do, you know, this week I had, I had lobster tail and I was like, I don't have to deshell it myself. Somebody else is going to do it. <laughs> we have somebody to help with all the dirty work. Um, so at least I have to put a sense of humor on it. Um, because otherwise you just go down that rabbit hole of this really sucks. And I really can't do shit for myself, part of my language. <laughs> Megan, talk to us about the impact you believe that your response to all of the problems you're going through yeah. has had a positive impact on your healing journey. So what I mean by that is, 
rather than choosing to have this negative mindset and to say, my life sucks, this is horrible, I can't live like this, you choose to have, find humor and joy despite yeah. all of the physical problems you have. Do you think that having that positive mindset and being able to laugh about it is actually helping you heal quicker than you would if you had a negative mindset and this life sucks, I'm miserable? Yeah, I do. I think that you know when you go through those really low lows, it's really draining of your energy. And so I try to focus more on like positive things, again, focusing on things that I still can do, um, things that I can still enjoy. Um, I think that for me, it was important to find purpose in all of the pain. And so finding ways that I can use my experience to help other people, um, something that somebody had told me a couple months ago was, you know, when you deal with hardship, you handle it two ways. You either want to make change so that other people don't have to endure that same difficulty, or you say, well, I suffered, you should have to suffer too. Um, and so I'm of the mindset that I want to make change so that other people don't have to deal with the nonsense that I've dealt with. And so finding ways to get involved with, you know, fundraising for research to doing advocacy work and just educating people about tick-borne illnesses, it's allowed me to find some sort of purpose in all of this um, because I think that I'm a great example of just how devastating a tick-borne illness can be and what inaccurate diagnostics can lead to. And so I really want to use my story to um, help you know, drive real tangible change for the community. So Megan, Rich is going to talk to you more about your transformation and finding purpose in, in your pain, but I'd like to focus on your diagnostic and treatment journey and some of the lessons you've learned throughout that. So you did mention earlier with Rich that you felt like you were dying, but you knew you weren't going to. And I think that's a really common thing that all of us in the Lyme community experience, that we get this fear that we feel like we feel like we're dying. We know we're not, and we get stuck in a state of panic and fear. So what tools do you use to help you get out of that state to overcome that, that our listeners can use as well to help them when they're in that particular state of mind? Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of different alternative therapies. I have a really great um, PA that I work with who's actually from my knee surgeon's office, and he has helped me so much with like pain management and um, kind of things that are beyond his call of duty, um, ways that I can make myself comfortable. Um, so utilizing different things like aromatherapy or, um, gosh, I'm trying to think what else I've, I've used that he's assisted with CBD, um, different things like that, that can kind of help manage some of your symptoms that may not necessarily be treating Lyme, um, finding things that are therapeutic, whether that's like music or art, or, um, if you have a hobby, just things that you can do that kind of, you know, produce endorphins for you. Um, I think that's really important. Um, but I also find it really helpful to just continue connecting with other people who are in the Lyme community and building those relationships and kind of having someone who can cheer you on, but also can commiserate with you. Um, I think that those are some of the most important elements in your healing journey. So Megan, some of the things you've heard from past podcast guests are that in the beginning, a lot of Lyme patients will disconnect from the community in general because they feel so misunderstood. So yeah. I think you're arguing that that should never happen. And when we disconnect, that's, that's sort of counterproductive to our healing and that we need to continue yeah. to communicate with the community and also our family and friends to be able to heal. Is that, is that something you feel strongly about? I, I think so. I think that, you know, unless you 
you get it, you don't get it. And so if you're not connected with people who are really living and experiencing this too, um, it can feel really isolating. Um, cause as much as you can have friends and family who have, you know, great intentions and they want to support, um, they, they may not know firsthand. And so it is really helpful. At least for me, I found it to be really helpful to be able to talk to somebody who's living it as well. So talk to us more about aromatherapy. You mentioned when you were in a high stress environment, a high pain environment, and you were starting to get overwhelmed and, and fearful yeah. that aromatherapy would help you. So in what way would that help you? And specifically tell us what would you use for aromatherapy to help you get out of that state? Well, um, I really love my Floris Lane candles. Trish is a great friend in the Lyme community. And I love that she makes really clean products. Um, and so I love the healing myself is a good one. Um, but just those are like simple pleasures that can kind of make you relax a little bit. And, um, there are definitely healing properties that different plants have. And so, um, aromatherapy is a great way to kind of, um, just wind down a little bit. And it's, it's just one of those simple pleasures that you can enjoy while you're, you know, really going through it when you're stuck in bed or on the couch. Now let's go back to you're in your early twenties. Mm -hmm. You're working, the more you're working, the worse you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you had a misdiagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. So did they, did they prescribe you anything or offer you any medication to help oh, you at yeah. that time with arthritis? Yes, they did. Um, so at that point, this was kind of the first answer that anybody had given me. And so I really, I was like, all right, whatever, I'm going to do anything that you say. I just want to be able to get out of bed and live my life. And so I started immediately on a high dose of prednisone, which is a steroid. And I was on immunosuppressant, um, low dose chemo drugs that I was giving myself a weekly injection of, um, cause we were trying to suppress my immune system thinking that it was RA. Um, and it for a while was helping. It got me to enough of a functional point that I could get out of bed. Um, but in the back of my mind, I always had a doubt that that was really correct. Um, I knew that there was something more and I knew that this was merely a band-aid. Um, and of course, hindsight is 2020 now. And I realized that those were probably some of the most detrimental things in my healing journey. Um, in a normal person who doesn't have tick-borne illnesses as an underlying condition, they can cause a lot of issues. And in my case, what they did is they kind of suppressed my immune system and opened the floodgates for all of the pathogens that were in my body to run rampant. And so it created the perfect storm between suppressing my immune system and active infection and having connective tissue disorder um, to destroy virtually every single joint in my body. Um, so when I say I'm the bionic woman, unfortunately I'm like running out of real estate, like I'm going to be full on metal and traveling with me will probably be a pain in the butt trying to get through TSA. Um, you know, I was embracing it and laughing about being the bionic woman at the beginning, but now I'm at the point where I'm like, well, I didn't want to be that bionic. Um, so I've already had bilateral hip replacement surgery. Um, I had that at 26. So pretty early. Um, I've had both of my shoulders have been totally replaced. Um, I've had reconstructive hand surgery because the arthritis in my hand 
got so severe that my hand contracted and was fixed in a fist position like this. So this is my one that's about to be done on Monday. Um, on my left hand, um, he basically broke my fingers and stuck some metal in them to make them a curved position. Um, so my hands are at a functional point. So I'm able to hold a pen. I can write now, which is really exciting. I can twirl spaghetti. That was a big milestone for me. Um, I can maneuver chopsticks, which is a very exciting one as well. Um, but you know, there's still a lot of things that I'm limited with. Um, but I am hopeful that one day I'll be able to do more, you know, my, my muscles have atrophied completely. I've lost like a third of my body composition, um, because I'm just a noodle from laying on the couch for like two years, going through all of these surgeries and treatment. Um, but you know, I'm not holding off on hope. Like I know that I've made progress. It's just really, really slow moving. And so I have to have a lot of patience with myself. Um, and just looking on the bright side, I can sit on the couch and watch Netflix and I would rather be working. I would rather be having my normal life, but in the meantime, I'm learning how to kind of like stop and smell the roses and appreciate little things and the little bits of progress that I'm making. Yeah, Megan, I think it's, 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 this is a marathon, not a sprint, as some people yeah. say, and you are clearly on your way to recovery. And after interviewing almost 200 people, we, we can confidently tell you we see you getting better and going back and working and being able to make real change in this community, which, again, Rich will touch on later on as far as what you're going to be doing now in the near future. But I want to come back to the steroids because yeah. a lot of people tell us that the steroids make them feel so much better. So how can they be so, so bad for me, right? So you mentioned that the steroids open up the floodgates by suppressing your immune system, which allowed the tick-borne pathogens to take over and really attack your joints and make you so much worse, but why did you feel better then? So, um, steroids are kind of like a double-edged sword and I took my first dose of them. And let's see, at that point, my mom was staying with me because I was so limited on what I could do. I was in so much pain. I could not even hold my toothbrush. I could not lift a sheet off of my body. Um, and so she had come to stay with me for a few weeks and I took that first dose of my steroid. I took a nap and I woke up two hours later and I was able to walk to the bathroom and do everything independently, which I had for the previous few weeks, not been able to do. Cause I was at such a debilitating point. Um, and so I was like, these are great. I love these things. I can move. I'm going to take them every day, but as they make you functional, they also are doing a lot of damage behind the scenes. Um, I mean, I know someone who, he was my hairdresser years ago, broke his arm in a skiing accident, had maybe three weeks of steroids. He ended up needing a total hip replacement and, you know, they do a lot of damage. And so in, in my instance, it was, it really just created the perfect storm. So. Um, do you think that the steroids essentially masked your symptoms? And that although yeah. they did reduce some inflammation, but they were masking your underlying symptoms. And, and that's why it was so dangerous because you were feeling good, but you really weren't good. I knew. Yeah. I knew that it was merely a bandaid, but when you are so sick and you can't move, you're desperate to do anything that will provide you any relief. And that's, what's so tricky is because 
Um, I, I know so many people in this community who we're all, we're desperate for relief. We're desperate for answers. We want a, a quick fix. Um, and unfortunately it's a lot more complicated than that, but steroids are one of those things that, well, it, it'll get me up and going. I guess I'll do it. It's take the risk and you kind of have to just assess, you know, the risks and the benefit. And, um, that's why it's, it's really dangerous. So let's talk about the implication of your Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and now the impact that the pathogens had at eating away at your joints. We do know that the Lyme bacteria and other tick-borne pathogens will eat away at your joints. And now you, you had EDS on top of this. So yeah. do you, EDS being a genetic disorder, is that something you believe is separate and distinct that you would have had regardless that just amplified the, yeah. the symptoms of Lyme? Or do you think that that was caused by your Lyme disease? So I have hypermobile EDS and um, I always thought it was like my cool party trick growing up that I was double jointed. Um, I have this picture that came up on my, my time hop or whatever, a couple of weeks ago. And it was an old picture and I was standing and my knee was like inverted. And I, that was the first thing that my eye caught. And it was like, oh my gosh, how did I not realize that's not normal? Like that is not how anybody should stand. Um, of course, now my joints are like on the opposite mobility spectrum. Um, but, but yeah, EDS, I, I think that I, you know, I've always had that hypermobility and again, it's what came first, the chicken or the egg. And with Lyme, I, you know, I've heard so many different theories about, you know, it could have been, it exasperated it. One could have led to the other. And it, again, I, I might not ever know, I might not ever piece that together, but the important thing is, is now I know that that's a component of my complicated health issues. And it's something that I am working to manage, um, so that hopefully we can kind of stop the progression in its tracks and prevent any further damage. So now talk to us about your, your further decline. So you, you were treating with this, this, these steroids, you felt a little bit better, you were working, and then you came home for this first surgery you mentioned because of, yeah. of all of your joint issues. And that was the beginning, I believe of your real crash. So walk us through that surgery and then the outcome of that surgery and how it impacted your health. Yeah. So at the time that I had this surgery, I was working with a functional medicine doctor, um, who was the one who actually brought up Lyme. Um, and she had run a ton of tests. We were looking at it from every angle. I went to her because I was like, I just, I don't believe it's RA. I don't have the rheumatoid factor. I have a hard time believing that just out of the blue, my body's going to flip a switch and, and blow up like this. It just doesn't make sense to me. And so she ran the testing. Um, and it was kind of right around the time that I had that first surgery. Um, so my first surgery, I had a, a very small tear in my meniscus and it had been causing me trouble on and off for about five years. Um, and during the summer I'd bring out the old leg brace and I'd manage it. And I knew that it was, you know, worse than humidity. And I knew that it would come and go with the seasons, but for the most part, I was able to, to grin and bear it and have a little Tylenol and call it a day. Um, but it got to the point where I was like, I am barely able to get up and down stairs. I can't bend my knee to tie my shoe. I've got to have surgery. And so I came and he did my meniscus partial removal, but he showed me the imaging from the surgery. Cause I'm one of those weirdos who likes to see the, the inside gory stuff. Um, so I ask all of my surgeons for this and I 
I'm not a trained medical professional by any means, but what he showed me, it looked like my knee was chewed up and something spit it out because he said, it doesn't make sense. Like this is not normal that you have this much damage. Um, and of course now knowing that there were different pathogens in there doing that, it totally makes sense. Um, but at the time we didn't know it. And so a few months later I had that I had my bilateral hip replacement surgery and I could not have gotten that done any sooner. Um, that was a huge, huge game changer because I was actually able to move. Um, I wasn't, you know, so paralyzed by the pain that I had. My gait was not abnormal. And it took a really long time to rehabilitate and learn how to walk normally again um, because my body had been frozen in this really awkward position. Um, but I did find out the day after my hip replacement that morning, I woke up and I got the test results that I had Lyme. And while I was in the hospital, we were like, oh, great. This is Lyme. We can get ahead of it. We can treat this with antibiotics. I'm going to be good. And we brought in an infectious disease specialist and she looked at my lab work from Armin labs. And she said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. And I just was so confused. I was like, it's clear as day. It's right here in writing. What more do you need? Give me antibiotics. I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. And she left the room. Um, and so, so yeah, what, what, I mean, you had a positive, was it because they didn't accept the blood work from Germany, from Armin Labs? Is that the reason why she couldn't help you? Or just because Lyme was so controversial in general that yeah. this infectious disease doctor basically said, I can't help you? Yeah, it's because Lyme is, you know, controversial. Her hands are tied behind her back because she has to go by the CDC protocol. And as we know, that doesn't, work in a chronic infection because I was way beyond the, you know, 10 days of doxy repair. Um, I needed long-term IV antibiotics. And that was what this functional medicine doctor told me. She, she called me off the record on her personal cell phone. And she said, this is off the record. Um, you have chronic Lyme disease, no doctor at any major medical institution will be able to treat you correctly. You need long-term IV antibiotics. Here's a list of three people who I would recommend checking out, get an ASAP. And this was a functional medicine doctor that you were seeing in parallel that was different than the infectious disease doctor at the hospital, correct? Exactly. Yep. And she's the one who kind of had uh, brought up Lyme for the first time ever. Um, she was the first doctor who even considered that an option. And I'm internally grateful for her because even, you know, knowing that she couldn't treat me, she made sure that I got to the right place. And what other markers did, did your functional medicine doctor run it? You know, was there any other precursor testing done to indicate yeah. a potential Lyme infection before you got your, your positive arm and lab test? So, like I said, she looked at it from every angle. So she was trying to see, was this something that was foodborne? Did I have parasites? Did I contract something traveling? Um, do I have something that's, you know, with my gut? So we ran all these really expensive lengthy tests. And then she ran one that was the CD57 panel, which, um, I believe it just shows if you have an active infection in your body and the normal scale is something like 50 to hundred and something. And I was at a 17. So it was really low. And she was like, no doubt you have an active infection. And the first two things that I'm going to think of are Lyme disease or pneumonia. And you clearly don't have pneumonia. So, um, she ended up suggesting that I ordered the labs through Armin and, um, turns out that was it. I have to I have to tell you as I'm as I'm talking with you, Megan. At first, I was enraged by hearing the infectious disease doctor tell you I can't help you, but now I can't help but wonder: was that her subtle way of telling you, "Hey, Megan, 
my hands are tied. I know what you need, but I can't give it to you. Go find somebody else. So was she really helping you rather than trying to hurt you? I don't think so. Um, it was just kind of like a very cold, I can't do anything, like kind of looked at me like I had five heads. Um, and, and, and hey, I get it. It's, it's not her fault. She's not educated on it. It's part of a bigger problem that is within the medical community. Not, you know, there's not enough that they're learning in their education um, that would make her realize that this could really be the culprit here um, and not realizing how complex and um, how, how, you know, devastating chronic Lyme disease can be because so many of these people, you know, who work in infectious disease, based on their education, they don't believe that chron uh, Lyme can be chronic and persistent. And as we know, it absolutely can. But I think that anybody with any basic, you know, scientific literacy would understand that if you have an infection and you don't treat it, what happens? It gets worse. So, so make, you know, yeah. if, if you're, you're, your functional doctor had to tell you on her personal cell phone that mm-hmm. you needed long-term antibiotics and nobody's going to give that to you. So was she willing to risk her own career and prescribe you long-term antibiotics? How did you get that, mm-hmm. that treatment? Yeah. So she told me she can't give me what I need. Um, so she's in a functional medicine group. And so antibiotic treatment is just not in her wheelhouse. And she said that she would need, or I would need to go to a Lyme literate doctor. Um, and so she recommended a few and I ended up getting an appointment two weeks later and traveling to go see my first LLMD. And are you comfortable sharing the name of your first LLMD? Yeah. Um, I work with the Jumpsit clinic. Um, and you know, when I got to the clinic, I was wheeled in, I was a zombie. I was a shell of myself. I was just so sick, especially like going through surgery and not having treated Lyme at all. Things were really stirred up. And so I was having a lot of cognitive dysfunction. My, um, brain fog was so bad. My, my dizzy spells were crazy. If I tried to stand up just to get off the couch and transfer into a, a chair or something, I felt like I was going to pass out and hit the, the floor because my tinnitus was so bad. Um, and so I got there and right away, they're like, you need IV. You're getting a line in, in two weeks. So get ready. And that's what I did for 10 months. And isn't it ironic that you were warned that no doctor would treat you with IV antibiotics for what you needed. You went mm-hmm. to Dr. Jemsek, who was willing to do that. And because of that, he got a slap on the wrist by the medical board and actually had a mark put on his record that that recently was overturned. Thank God we're making progress in that regard. But he was one of the few people actually willing to treat you the way you needed to be treated to get better, it sounds like. Dr. J has done so much good for the Lyme community and putting himself on the line because he knows that this is such an underserved population. Um, And I respect him tremendously for doing that. It's a selfless thing to do, to be able to know that you're putting yourself at risk personally, but you know, the, the possibility of the way that you can help so many other people is, is worth it. Um, and he actually used to practice in Charlotte, which is where we live. And so, um, you know, he was known in the community and, you know, I, I wish he was still there cause it would have been easier than traveling to DC, but it was worth the trip. And, you know, it got me to such a better place going through IV. It was, it was a brutal 10 months that I did it, but um, I'm very fortunate that that was an option for me. Um, most of my neurological issues have 
uh, disappeared. Um, I think we've stopped most of the infection that was, you know, running rampant in my joints, but unfortunately I'm still left with a lot of residual damage because there are things that, you know, antibiotics or antimicrobials can't fix like joint damage is irreversible. So my only option is just becoming metal. <laughs> so stronger than before. So yeah, but stronger I, than before I'm invincible. I'm just going to be made of a lot of metal. So I want to follow up with when, what was, how did you feel and how did your family feel? Were you questioning your diagnosis? Because and if you had a positive test, your infectious disease doctor at the hospital said, I can't help you. Then your functional medicine doctor says, I can't help you either, but off the record, you need treatment that nobody's going to give you. So now you're like in this like shadow society of medical treatment. Did you think that this was like possibly not real? And like, where was your head at with all this? I think my head was kind of in two different places because part of me was like, this is it. This is the missing piece. Everything makes sense. And right away, of course, I went to the internet because the internet is amazing and you can connect to people all over the world and learn things that you're never going to have in front of you in your everyday life. Um, and so I was like, I need to find other patients. I need to talk to somebody who's lived this and I need to know that this is legitimate. And I talked to a few people and who were so willing to share their experience with me and validate everything that I'd gone through and hearing other people's stories and how similar it was to my own. It clicked and it was like, this is it. This is the missing piece of the puzzle. Um, but at the same time too, you know, we're taught that, you know, doctors are experts. So how is it? I, I didn't, it didn't make sense to me how so many different doctors could have overlooked it. Um, but obviously there's a bigger issue that I've come to learn about. And so I understand why my experience was the way it was in seeing, um, all the different doctors I saw who never put Lyme together as part of the problem. So really it was the community that you found on the internet that helped you have the belief that you really had Lyme to move forward and go see Dr. Jemsek. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk more about Dr. Jemsek because we've had several podcast guests in the past treat with him as well. And he's treated each of them differently based on their own personal experiences. So with yeah. you, what was the first line of defense? You did mention, of course, the antibiotics, which you probably desperately needed in your case, but did he do anything before that or in parallel to the IV antibiotics yeah. that were part of your treatment protocol as well? So I had not just IV antibiotics, I was doing some oral antibiotics and I was doing some different tinctures and herbs. And I mean, it was a whole concoction of things. Um, I was on a lot of different medications, you know, anti-parasitic drugs, um, antiviral things. And, you know, he's really got a good science of this and, um, you know, we went through and I tried lots of different things that targeted different infections that I had. Um, I was lucky that I was able to just begin IV right away. Um, I didn't really have to go through like a stabilization, stabilization period, excuse me. Um, so I was able to jump right in and begin, um, what we called the exorcism. <laughs> um, cause that's really what it felt like for every day for 10 months, pretty much. Um, I mean, I've been on some low dose chemo drugs for years, but IV antibiotics are a different beast. Like they make you so sick before you get better. But, um, I know that they worked because the further away I get from them, the better I'm feeling. Um, 
So I, and I've been off of antimicrobials for a couple of months now and I've been stable knock on wood. So. Megan, let's talk about the, I think common mistakes some people in the community make is they know they have Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. They treat with IV antibiotics, which can target the Lyme bacteria and they don't get better. And it sounds like Dr. Jemsek recognized that it's, it's most often, it's not just Lyme disease, other co-infections, other viruses that get reactivated because you're so weak. So you did mention that he gave you some, some antivirals, antiparasitics. He gave you herbs and tinctures to rebuild your immune system and your gut health. And he did all of that in parallel to antibiotics to address the Lyme. So do you think that was an important part of your journey? Because likely there was far more than just a Lyme bacteria causing you to be sick. I know that there was way more than Lyme bacteria because of the testing that I had done. I know that I have Bartonella, I have Babesia, I have um, Mycoplasma pneumonia is probably my worst co-infection. Um, and that one's a really tricky to tricky one to treat because it resists a lot of antibiotics. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that he didn't do like a one-stop shop. It was a whole concoction of things. And every, you know, every couple of weeks, my protocols would change and, um, I could feel different things being targeted. It's really wild how aware I was of like what was being targeted in each, um, different antibiotic or, or medication that I was taking. Um, some days I would feel really severe neurological herxing. Some days I would feel it in my joints. Um, some days it would be gastrointestinal upset and, it was wild how everything was targeted at different times, but overall, I think we killed a lot of, a lot of the beast that was inside of me. <laughs> I like your analogy, the exorcism and killing yeah. the beast inside of me. And the, yeah. beast, the beast is now gone. Thank God from, from inside of you. Yeah, but hopefully. Talk, talk to us about the, because a lot of people that we've talked to as well have told us that they've treated the treatment yeah. resulted in, in too much of a severe herx and they stopped because they felt they weren't yeah. able to go through it. So what gave you the strength and also the confidence that you were actually treating the root cause, right? Because I think it's twofold. Number one, I can't take this. It's too unbearable. I need to stop. Yeah. And then they stay sick forever. Or number two, they doubt themselves. I'm feeling so much worse. Can it really be Lyme if I feel this much worse yeah. from the treatment? So how did you mentally overcome that obstacle to continue yeah. on this, this 10 month journey of hell to get rid of all of these or, or a lot of these, these pathogens in your body? Yeah. So I think it was kind of two things. One is that I, I understood I was going to get far worse before I got better because I was educated about what a Herx reaction looks like and how the antibiotics are going to resist and how your symptoms are going to flare and how they may come back one by one. So I had symptoms that I hadn't experienced since like the very beginning of my illness come back to life. And I was like, wait a minute, what? But it would come back we'd go through the treatment and then I haven't seen it again. And so it was like one last hurrah for the symptoms, I guess (laughs) they just had to have a grand exit, but, um, it was really, really difficult to push yourself because like I said, I wanted to throw in the towel a lot because it's, it's challenging to do something that, you know, is going to hurt you temporarily. Um, I didn't want to be plugged up to my IV because I knew I'd spent the night with my head in the trash can and, you don't want to do that. You don't want to feel like the room is spinning. You don't want to deal with all that stuff, knowing that it's coming. Um, so I was also lucky in that, um, my parents were like, just sit down, we're plugging you in. It's not an option. Like you're going to keep going. You're going to keep doing this because we can see you're getting better. Um, 
So I think sometimes it's important to have somebody who's like a bit of a pit bull around you um, to push you to keep going even when you want to quit. And I think you hit on something really important as a tip for the, our listeners is that when you started to treat, symptoms came back that you didn't have that were part of your original symptomology that you were able to overcome. And that fear can result in a lot of people from stopping treatment because they don't want to go backwards. But then yeah. you noted that that was only temporary and they haven't come back since. So that was an integral part of bringing that pathogen out, experiencing that symptomology to help your body heal from whatever was mm-hmm. that, whatever it was causing that symptom, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it is rough to go through all that and knowingly put yourself through it, but you just have to persevere because as brutal as it is, like you're making progress when you do that. Um, it's just like a little pain for, you know, the gains that you're going to get afterwards. And I totally understand. I didn't, I didn't want to do it myself. I, I really wanted to quit so many times, literally the day that they put the IV line in my chest. Um, we jokingly called it my boob tube. Um, and so we, the day I was like, I want to go back. I want it out. I don't want to do this anymore. But it was like, I had to keep pushing. And I, I put up a fight a lot. Um, cause it's hard to put yourself through that. It's hard to put your life on hold, but it's absolutely worth it. If you're going to get out of the mess that you're in or see some improvement in your quality of life and, you know, have a better sense of functionality, those things are absolutely worth it. Um, the other thing that I think that's important is paying attention to environmental things because, there are a lot of environmental factors that can really inhibit you from healing. Um, and you have to absolutely make lifestyle changes and it's hard. Um, because one of the challenges that I faced was, you know, fearing that everything around me, everything that I was ingesting was making me sick. Um, so you have to be super aware of your body, Um, and pay attention to the things that may be triggering. Um, If it's certain foods or beverages, or if it's, you know, fragrances around you, or if it's, you know, a house that you're living in or your work environment, there are lots of different environmental factors that can exasperate your symptoms. Um, I know for me, one of the biggest challenges I faced was mold exposure, which I think really, heightened a lot of my symptoms for a while. I was living in a house that I didn't realize had a lot of mold. And the minute I moved out, it was like a lot of my symptoms started to improve because all the detoxing I was doing, it was kind of, it it wasn't doing anything because I was still in that same environment. Um, And it's really difficult to have to remediate all of that to part ways with certain things. Like I had to throw out my mattress. it's a big inconvenience, but for the health benefits, it's definitely worth it. Um, if you're able to change your environment. So we've had a past podcast guest actually tell us that she left all of her belongings behind when she found out her house had molded it literally threw everything out and started from scratch and moved because it was having that much of an impact on her health. And fast forward, this was about a a month or two ago that we we interviewed this young woman. And now today she's doing so much better because she's out of that moldy environment and she was doing everything right, but she just didn't know she was exposed to mold. So, and, and that's a key question we get all of the time from people. How did you know that there was mold in your home. What brought that to mind? And then what tests did you run to determine that mold was really a problem for you in your healing journey? 
Yeah. So, um, I knew there was mold in my house. I was living in a really cute 1920s, like craftsman style bungalow. And I love a house with a lot of character and I had been there for a while. And I realized that I was getting progressively worse while I was living there. Um, and as I was moving out, my parents decided to go take a peek in the basement, which I never went down to. And it was just a mold cavern. So I was, ingesting it. It was, you know, coming through the, you know, the air conditioning unit and blown into my room all the time. And so there's no doubt that I was exposed to it. Um, and now I'm hyper aware when I enter a space that has mold to it. Um, like I'm traveling right now and I was somewhere this week, you know, I can tell if like, there's a lot of moisture in the air. We got an old carpet or something. I, I just know I'm going to feel it and I'm feeling it today actually. Um, but it's one of those things that you, you know, if you can do the testing, if you can work with a remediation specialist, if you're able to part ways with items, I mean, I even have like a sweatshirt that I love that a couple of weeks ago, I put it on for the first time and I smelled it right away. And I was like, this is going to make me sick. And in about 15 minutes, I could feel my joints were starting to hurt and I had to take it off. And I was like, just throw it away. I can't keep it. It's not worth <laughs> the pain. So I think the Megan big picture is you're listening yeah. to your body more than ever now. And yeah. you're, you're able to identify what fragrances, what scents, what food, what, whatever, maybe having, maybe causing you to have certain symptoms. And that's helped you to overcome a lot of things as well. But let's get a little more specific about that. Right. So you mentioned that if you're exposed to mold, that you'll know because of the symptoms you develop. And when you left your moldy, your moldy home, your mm -hmm. symptoms started to clear up pretty quickly, which yep. symptoms specifically cleared up as a result of the mold. So if people are listening and wondering, am I exposed to mold? Should I yeah. pursue this avenue? They can identify, do they have similar symptoms to you that could be resolved potentially by removing themselves from that moldy environment? Yeah. Um, so I'll see it in my skin. I'll get um, little bits of eczema, um, which is something that happened only as I got older. Um, my sinuses are so bad um, and I'm pretty congested right now. And I can... I can tell right away if I stay somewhere that I'm exposed because I start to feel like um, I have a lot of post-nasal drip and I, my throat will really hurt. My tonsils will feel kind of swollen. Um, my joint pain will increase. And so, and it's hard too, because again, a lot of these are symptoms that can be related to other things. So that's why it is challenging to pinpoint, but um, I've gotten to a point where I'm just very hyper aware of when something in my body is starting to go awry and I can usually piece together, oh, it's because I ate, you know, salsa earlier and peppers are highly inflammatory for my body. Or it's because I stayed the night somewhere that has an old carpet and it's a little musky and I was breathing it in and now I, I'm, you know, feeling it today. Um, so yeah, I think when you get out of that kind of environment too, like I moved from that old house into a brand new apartment and there was no mold or water damage. And I was breathing great quality air with a, a high, um, uh, a higher filter grade um, that I put in my AC unit and it's worth the splurge. But those are the kind of things that I have to pay attention to. So looking back, Megan, I'm just curious, yeah. What are some things that you've learned that have helped you overcome some symptoms while treating, whether it be a Herx reaction, mm -hmm. a reaction to mold exposure, food insensitivities, 
you know, could be anything from even yeah. from light or sound sensitivities that you can provide to our audience that have helped you yeah. temporarily while treating that have made your quality of life a little bit better going through this journey. Um, detoxing is key and whatever way works for you. Sometimes it's trial and error. Um, cause what works for one person may not work for another. I know I love an infrared sauna. I love, um, lemon water. I love activated charcoal. Um, I love a green tea. And those are a lot of things that help me a lot just to clear any of the junk that might be lingering in my symptom. And also with herxing, the more I increase my detox methods, whether it's doing, you know, when I had my line, I would do a a lactated ringer bag, um, maybe run an extra one. All those things will kind of help clean it out of your system um, a little bit faster. And just, it it helps to reduce the load of, of uh, bacteria that's in there. Um, I think that's a big one. Um, Trying to think what else. I'm having a lime brain moment. If you can't, okay. nope. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump back to your your yeah. 10, 10 month exorcism window where you were yeah. removing the beast from within. At mm-hmm. that at that time, do you recall any of the specific medicine that you're on that Dr. Jemsek was prescribing you? Any of the antiviral, parasitics, the antibiotics, you know, the specific type of drugs that you you were yeah. being prescribed. So I was on all sorts of different IV antibiotics. And I, um, unfortunately I can't disclose specifics because, um, you know, to protect himself, we have to sign an NDA, um, about specific treatments, um, because unfortunately he's been burned in the past and I totally understand that. Um, but I was on a whole variety of different antibiotics that target different things, different areas, different pathogens. Um, and I mean, things that I hadn't even thought would be a part of it were, essential parts of treatment. And I think I was on five different IV antibiotics. And then if I tried to begin to count the amount of pills that I took, I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> so how long, you, well, we know you were on it for 10 months. Yeah. What triggered you and Dr. Jemsek to, to pause or stop the IV antibiotic treatment? Did you feel you're at a place where you were better and you were ready to, to, to stop? Was there another health crisis that you had to address? Yes. So I, it was a combination of things. I started realizing I was really paying attention to how I was feeling while I was on antibiotics versus on my off days or off weeks. And I started to realize that, you know, midway through my treatment, it was like a switch. In the beginning, I felt better when I was on the medication. And then it got to be the further away I got from them, the better I felt. And so that was kind of my indication that my body was starting to do its job maybe I'm starting to just have more side effects from the antibiotics, like they were working, um, but they had done their job. And so maybe I needed to, to step back. Um, the other component was that I needed to have my shoulder replaced. Um, and because I had a central line in my chest, my, um, surgeon wanted it removed and healed for a couple of weeks before he would open me up. And I was at the point where I really couldn't move my arms. Like I couldn't even, you know, move my hand to touch my face, to wash my face, to push my hair back. That's how limited my mobility was in my shoulders. And so, um, I knew that I needed to start, you know, get the ball rolling again so that I could have improved mobility and have a better quality of life. And I knew that I was taking a gamble by pausing antibiotic treatment. Um, because you really just, you don't know how it's going to go. You don't know if your immune system is going to do its job or for how long, and I recognize that I'm still playing with fire. Um, but I have had since 
since I got my line out, since I stopped antibiotic treatment, I've had three surgeries. I'm about to have another one on Monday. And, you know, anybody who's gone through treatment and has gone through herxing, you know, that's a lot. And anybody who's gone through surgery knows that you need to give your body ample time and space to heal. And I just can't imagine going through herxing while also going through you know, through the, the healing stage from surgery, it would be way too much stress on my body. And I just, I think it's important to listen to your body and it's what its immediate needs are. Um, because I don't want to do more harm than good. So I, Megan, was this, this was about a year ago, you stopped antibiotics and then had mm-hmm. these surgeries, correct? Yeah. It'll be a year in November that I stopped antibiotics. So do you think that your joint damage has subsided because now you're solely dealing with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome impacting your joints and the lack of collagen and not the combination of EDS and the bacteria chewing away at your joints? Yeah. Um, I would like to think because I've been relatively stable since I've stopped, I haven't really regressed. And I understand that the deterioration of my joints and the damage in my joints has already been there since, you know, before I started treatment. And so it's kind of just one of those things that you might not be able to stop it completely. Um, And so, yeah, so I've been off of all of those. And I think that we're going to retest me soon. I'm working with um, Dr. Kelly now. And um, I really like that we're working on things to restore a lot of the damage that Lyme has done. I'm doing peptide therapy and I'm doing um, a lot of different supplements that help support EDS. And I've seen a lot of um, improvement since being on those. And so we're going to retest just to make sure that my levels are in a safe spot, but you know, if I still have something that's lingering, I absolutely want to get ahead of it and not give it any more time to wreak havoc. What made you decide to stop treating Dr. Jemsek and pivot over to Dr. Casey Kelly, whom we love and actually Rich has used as his mind litter doctor as well? Um, so I think that, you know, you can have so many different doctors to help with your healing journey. And Dr. Jemsek really helps kill off a majority of the bacteria that and the pathogens that were in my body. Um, and I, I knew going through surgery, I needed something that was a little less aggressive. And I felt like we were overlooking some of the things like EDS is what, you know, Dr. Kelly helped me figure that out. And so I wanted to work with a functional doctor who, you know, had it more tools in their tool belt. Um, cause Dr. J you know, really focuses on more of antimicrobials. Um, and I was really interested in trying things like peptide therapy, um, to help restore some of the damage. And so I, I had heard great things about Dr. Kelly from, um, some friends in the community. Allie Moresco was one of the people who encouraged me to check her out because she's had great progress with her as well. Um, and so I, I really am glad that I've tried different things and, um, it, it is really a lot of trial and error because there's, you know, no two people are going to have the same experience with, you know, different modalities for healing. And so I really like that I'm getting to try lots of different things to figure out the perfect um, tailored treatment plan for myself. So now that you're in this repair mode or recover mode with Dr. Mm-hmm. Kelly, talk just a little bit more about, about peptides. We've had some past guests tell us that peptides are really helpful in rebuilding the collagen to address mm-hmm. their joints. So do you think that peptides peptides can be a helpful tool to sort of counter the damage being done by EDS? And that's something that maybe you can do, you know, indefinitely to help, help your joints. Yeah. So in 
starting peptide therapy immediately, I felt some big changes. My sleep was improved. My cognitive function was really improving. Um, I used to struggle and, you know, not be able to come up with words for basic things like a washcloth or a toothbrush. Like I couldn't think I'm like that thing on the stick that my teeth. And now I feel like my mind is as sharp as it should be. Um, and I think that I can attribute that to peptide therapy helping me a lot. Um, as far as collagen goes, I see like changes in my skin, my hair is improving, my nails are healthy, but my joints are kind of, I think a lost cause at this point. Um, and who needs them anyway? You're the bionic woman, right? Yeah, you don't need, who needs them, joints? Right? I can just put metal in my whole body. Um, we're running out of real estate, but um, yeah, I actually am going to be, I'm slated for a few more joint replacement surgeries. Um, I've just found out I have to have both of my knees replaced. Um, elbows, wrist, and I actually will be breaking the world record for joint replacements. So truly the bionic woman at this point, truly the bionic woman coming so, soon, <laughs> coming soon. I'll be in the next transformers movie. So I know there are many different types of peptides. Do you mm -hmm. know which specific peptide you're on with Dr. Casey Kelly? Um, BPC one five seven. And I might not say it correctly. I think it's thymosin beta I want to say it was four, TB4, maybe. Yeah, but those, those are actually very common in the Lyme community. We actually had a past guest, Jeremy Scott, who told us after our interview that he tried to tried using peptide therapy and that the BPC-157 peptides were the biggest game changer out of everything for yeah. him in his recovery. And it sounds like for you, it was integral in your, in your brain fog and your cognitive it really abilities. really helped a lot. And just like my overall stamina being, I mean, I'm not moving a whole lot, but being able to get through the day without having, you know, four cups of coffee just to like barely get by is really nice. Like I have the energy levels that I would like to have, um, not needing an afternoon nap, not needing to crash by 8 PM. Um, yeah. Peptides have been a great help. Do you know specifically what peptides are doing to help you feel better? You know, what they're actually doing in your body? Um, the way that Dr. Kelly explained it to me is that they can target lots of different things and cause they're the amino acid chains that are already in your systems. And basically they just teach your body how to do things that they already do. Um, so she said that she could give me peptides to make me tanner or to make my hair grow longer. And I was like, well, I'll take both of those. Um, what about, what about hair growing back? That's totally gone. Would yeah. that help me? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, I have to say I had a lot of hair loss with going through treatment and I am amazed with how much my hair has grown being on peptides. Um, I have like all this baby hair that is really annoying, but you know what? It's coming back. So I'm going to take it. Um, it's almost like postpartum hair loss um, is a great way to describe how severe it can be with, with Lyme. Um, but I, I do those and they also help with, you know, cognitive function, one helps with your joints and your bone health. And um, I'm, I'm not most well-versed on these, but I see the benefits. And so I'm a believer. <laughs> Megan, how does this work? Because is it a prescription you fill at a pharmacy? Is this something you have to um, order online that you, anybody can buy themselves without a practitioner? Um, I've heard of people who do that, but I am lucky that Dr. Kelly gets them delivered and sent right to my house. So I don't have to do the runaround because I wouldn't know where to go. Um, but I think it comes from like a compounding pharmacy, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I get them shipped to my house and they just hang out in my fridge and um, I get an uh, injection a couple nights a week. 
So you actually inject the peptides? Is that like um, like yeah. with a needle? Uh, yep. Yeah. So I just get the basic syringes from my local pharmacy and um, my mom will give the injections for me because right now with my hands in the state that they are, I don't have the dexterity to do it myself, which I once did. And I would love to do it myself because it's not fun when somebody who's not truly a professional poking you with a needle. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. Well, coming soon, you will be able to do it yourself when once you are truly the bionic woman and break that world yeah. record and become part of the Avengers. So yeah. The, are you doing anything else with Dr. Kelly besides the peptides right now to help rebuild your body? Yeah. So I recently started on um, LDN um, and I had previously not been a candidate for it because I had been on long-term pain medication to keep me comfortable through all my surgeries and everything. Um, and I started it, I want to say like a little over a month ago and wow, big game changer. Um, you know, my energy levels are so much better. Cognitive functions improved. Um, I, you know, I've, been pretty much bed bound for the last two years between all of the surgeries and treatment. And in the last six months, especially it's been really challenging because the way that my hands and my shoulders have been, my balance and coordination is off. So I don't walk a ton. Um, and I definitely have not been able to do stairs or anything like that. And so, um, it's been a huge win that in the last couple of weeks with a lot of help, I've been able to get up and down stairs. So you, I need someone basically boosting me up, but I'm able to do like three or four stairs. Um, and that was like an LDN win. <laughs> so talk to us about what LDN is. It's low dose naltrexone, correct? Yes. And so I believe it's historically used to help um, block like your opioid receptors. So it's used in a lot of cases uh, where an individual has a drug or alcohol dependency. Um, and so it gives you a really big endorphin boost and my moods improved on it. And, uh, yeah, it helps with chronic inflammation and pain in low doses. It also helps regulate your immune system. Um, so it's kind of like a miracle drug for me, um, because it kind of covers a lot of different things that I need help with. And I just wish I had started it sooner. So I wonder, you know, you're not on any antimicrobials, you're not on antibiotics because you're you're focusing on your surgeries and rebuilding your body. Mm -hmm. But LDN, we do know, is a strong immune modulator and immune strengthening tool. So do you think that your immune system has sort of stepped up to become the antimicrobial component because it's now becoming mm -hmm. regulated and actually attacking the pathogens that normally your body wouldn't have in the past? I think so. I think that my immune system is doing a better job and I... I would like to say that because I've been off of antibiotics for so long and haven't regressed, that's kind of my indicator. But then again, there could be things that are going on under the surface that I'm just not aware of. Um, and so, you know, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll do some testing and we'll have a better idea. But overall, I think, I think we're in a decent spot comparatively speaking, at least. I think we're, I think you're in a very good spot at this point. So any, any negative side effects that are noteworthy for LDN or mm -hmm. even the peptides that our listeners may be wondering, hey, I'm really interested in trying that, but what are potential negative side effects that I could experience from those? Um, Dr. Kelly explained to me that they were really low risk for both of them. Um, she said that some people may not have as much of, um, you know, as many good outcomes with peptide therapy. Um, 
it worked for me though. And so I, again, it's one of those things that I think that it's trial and error because what works for one may not work for another. Um, but, but overall I've been happy with it. I haven't really had any adverse reactions luckily. So, um, I'm glad that it's a little, little risk for a great reward. I also wonder if LDN can be used as an alternative to people who, who need to go get prescription anti-depression medication, anti-anxiety medication that, that becomes very addictive. You mentioned that LDN actually helps boost endorphins naturally. So do you think that could be an alternative or some of our listeners should look at yeah. to traditional Western pharmaceuticals? I mean, again, I'm not a, I'm not a medical expert by any means. I can just say, you know, as a patient and as a person, what I've seen in my experience is that my moods improved significantly since on it. And, you know, when you go through chronic illness, you deal with anxiety and depression. And that's something that is very real and that I have battled with myself. And I've seen a significant change since I started LDN in just my overall demeanor. So talk to us now. I, I always love to ask the question of you were you were bed bound at one point, and now you mentioned you're able to walk through stairs a little bit. Give us give us a, a situation that you've been in recently where you've been doing something that you never thought you'd be able to do as a result of all the hard work you put into your treatment journey. Uh, oh gosh. Um, so recently, I, I you know with my hands the way that they are, like I'm having to regain fine motor skills. Um, the things that I do in hand therapy are kind of what you would be doing with a toddler who's learning how to write, who's picking up marbles, who's playing with Play-Doh. Um, and I never thought those things would be so exhausting, but they are because working your hand is really mentally challenging too. It, it requires a lot of work. Um, so, you know, me being able to pick up small things and put them in my own mouth, like uh, eating pistachios, like that was a big win. Being able to twirl a fork to eat spaghetti, that was a big win for me. Um, you know, it's little things that to anybody who, you know, may not have experienced something like this, it seems so insignificant, but it's kind of a big deal when you go from being completely independent and able-bodied to having little to no, you know, function or independence on your own, needing virtually help, help with virtually everything. Um, so yeah, those are, those are big wins for me. <laughs> so Megan, we want to talk to you about now your transformation, right? Mm -hmm. And how you've been able to accomplish as much as you've been able to accomplish, despite all of the challenges you've had to face, right? We talk, mm -hmm. we, we often call this the beautiful piece of lime, um, part of our podcast. Talk yeah. to us about what you've learned about yourself on this journey that you believe you would not have understood had you not been on the journey. Um, that's a great question. This whole experience for me has been very humbling. Um, as I've said, I was, you know, a very wildly independent person. I like to do everything for, <laughs> excuse me, for myself and by myself. And then needing to ask for assistance with everything is, it was hard. Um, and that was a hard thing to accept that I needed to ask for help. Um, I realized that while my life does look very different and that, you know, I'm limited in my mobility, I'm, you know, making slow progress with physical therapy. My body's, you know, still kind of a noodle. Um, I, I'm making those 
you know, progress. My mind is still, I feel like doing well. And I think that's important in my instance that I separate them because, you know, I could wait my whole life for my body to catch up to my mind and it may never happen and that's okay. Um, but I realized how many things that I still can do, um, if I'm, you know, bed bound or if I'm needing a mobility device, um, there are still many things that I can do and feel productive and feel like myself. And I think it's important to find those things and stick to them. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of the gist of it. So Megan, let's talk about grief and purpose because they have the sort of yeah. like the two parallel, uh, emotional concepts that are really powerfully coming through to me as I'm listening to you and Matt talk. And we know that grief is a cycle. You and I talked a little bit earlier about the grief cycle. And uh, one of the, one of the um, thought leaders that we study talks about the grief cycle as being denial, anger, sadness, mm -hmm. bargaining, and acceptance. Yeah. And uh, one of the things we've observed in this podcast is, unfortunately, many of the folks who go through that grief cycle repeatedly, the first grief cycle when, you're, when your body begins to abandon you and you get sick, then a second time when you go through your, your uh, diagnostic journey where you get a diagnosis and you lead yourself to believe that taking a couple of pills or at, at least the medical community leads you to believe that you should expect that you'll take a couple of pills and you get better and you don't. And then you go through the cycle again. And then you have all of these different stumbles that uh, or stumbling blocks that you have to overcome and you sort of keep going through that grief cycle. And the problem with going through the grief cycle so many times is in many cases, people get stuck. They get stuck with on the anger stage, or they get stuck on the sadness and ultimately depressive stage. And they never get through the cycle to get point to the point where they can create something new, right? But you always create something new. And I'm just wondering if you believe it's because you've always had this purpose. You've lived this purposeful life all the way from when you were a small child where you were going to help other people and you were going to help other people in, in, in some very powerful ways. And despite you going through everything that you've gone through, you stayed focused on your purpose of helping other people. And now you're continuing to do that. So is it because you've always had this purpose in mind that you've been able to go through all these challenges and go through the grief cycle repeatedly, but continue to create something new to achieving your purpose? Yeah. So I've been through that cycle many a time. And, you know, every time you get a new diagnosis or if I learn, I have to have another surgery or have a little bit of a setback. I, I start with the cycle again. And I think, you know, where I'm at, I've gotten to the point where sometimes I feel like I can jump through different cycles and I'm like, okay, like, let me focus on the things that I can actually control here. Um, there are a lot of elements of this that are totally out of my control, but like, if I can hone in on the things that are within my control, I can feel like I'm in charge and I'm taking the reins on my my own health journey and my personal life too. So let's um, pause that for a second, man, because I think that's really important. So one of the tools that you're using to keep yourself emotionally healthy is recognizing that focusing on the things that you can control rather than on the things you cannot control will allow you to remain emotionally healthy. Yeah, I totally believe that. Um, that's something that my dad has always said my entire life, focus on the things that you can control. And, and that applies to, you know, chronic illness and disability. It applies to, you know, your work life. It applies to relationships. It applies to so many different things because if you spend your time worrying and stressing about things that are out of your control, it's just wasted energy. Um, and so being able to focus on the things that I can control. So obviously I can't control the fact that 
I have complete musculoskeletal deterioration, but what I can control is that I can do things that are improving my mindset right now. I can improve my cognitive function. Um, you know, I'm like, I can still, I can go back to school from my couch. I can, um, you know, eventually get back to work. I can do advocacy work. I can find ways to be productive, to be fulfilled, to help others. Um, and within and pursue your purpose. Yeah. And pursue my purpose and, and do it all from the comfort of my couch, because I realize I'm not going to get up and run around like I used to. That's okay. Because you can still make change from, you know, being seated. <laughs> Now, Megan, you also talked about focus earlier about focusing on the things that you have rather than the things you don't have. So talk to us about how you learn through this journey, the importance of focusing on what you have rather mm -hmm. than what you don't have, not only just what you can't, what you can control, but also what you have. Yeah. So I recognize that in my experience, as much as I've been dealt a bad hand, I'm very, very fortunate that I have a great support system. I have the, you know, the resources to improve my condition. And I recognize that those are privileges that, you know, many people don't have. And so I appreciate that I have those things and that I have the means to improve my condition. Um, and so in my experience, I find that it's important to keep that mindset, to recognize those things and to find out how I can use my experience and, you know, my platform and my connections to improve things for other people in this community. Um, one of the mantras that I've always had that was from my work experience that, you know, I actually learned from working at Nordstrom is you leave things better than you found them. And, you know, that's with people, that's with places, that's with things, whether it's, you know, picking up a piece of trash, whether it's, you know, helping someone to have a different mindset that might help them in their everyday life, whether it's, you know, just lending a hand when you can, just like whatever you can do, find a way to extend yourself to other people. Um, and so that's kind of the same mantra that I want to bring to, you know, the place that I stand in, in my position in this community. So Megan, let me talk about one other piece of your focus. It's very clear to me that you do not focus on the past mm -hmm. and you don't really focus on the future either. You really focus on the present and enjoying every moment and making the most of every moment. So talk to us about your, your temporal focus and how you appear to be focusing on the present and making the most out of every present moment. Yeah. So when I think about future and what's interesting is that I've typically been a very futuristic person. Um, in college, I took a leadership course and we had to figure out what our top five strengths were and futuristic was one of my strengths. And so I'm always forward thinking, um, I'm thinking big picture, where's my end goal? How am I going to get there? And in dealing with chronic illness and disability, I realized that I'm going to let myself down a lot. If I'm thinking too far ahead, I have to have realistic expectations. I have to focus on the things that are just in front of me because I'm really going to let myself down if I'm thinking, you know, way ahead and then things don't come together because life is unpredictable. Um, and so that's just something that I always try to look at is what's directly in front of me. What's, you know, time sensitive, what, what can I do right now? So, um, whether it's right now I'm enjoying time up with my family to distract myself before I have another series of surgeries. Um, it's just, how can I live in the moment and 
you know, I want to think a big picture, but at the same time, I have to curb my expectations because, you know, Lyme is unpredictable. So we can talk to us about purpose and identity and mm-hmm. how uh, your purpose has helped you to maintain an identity of someone who is not a victim, but as somebody who is a warrior in this battle. It's a really great question. Um, so I have a, an interesting little segue because um, I love that you said warrior in this battle. And I shared this recently with um, Allie. I was talking with her about this. Um, I don't want to have the victim mentality because that's not the best position for survival. And that's all I'm trying to do right now is survive and be as comfortable as possible. Um, because you know, you have to focus on just what's in front of you. Um, so a couple of years ago when I lived in Nashville, um, I survived a violent assault and I spent the night in the trauma center and I, was very, very fortunate to not have sustained any life-threatening injuries. We were very concerned that I had um, perceived, you know, I had had blows to my head. So I thought that I was going to have a traumatic brain injury or damage of some sort. And I was able to walk out in the morning and luckily had little to no long-term effects. Um, but that morning when I was leaving, I had paper scrubs on cause they had to cut my clothes off my body. and the jacket that I was wearing the night before was a camouflage jacket. And I had that on and I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror with this camo jacket on. And my, I mean, I had blood coming out of my ears. I had a, you know, black eye. I was really banged up. I was in horrible shape, but it was kind of like this aha moment where I was like, I kind of look like a badass. Like I still have this camo jacket on. Like I look like I just went through hell and back, but I'm like, I'm not going to, fall into the victim mentality. And that's kind of the same thing that I want to bring into, to my Lyme experience and dealing with chronic illness. So I have this weird thing that I do that every time I go to surgery, I wear my camo sweatpants. <laughs> um, cause it's kind of like a reminder of, okay, you're, you're, you know, a fighter, you're not quitting. You're not gonna, you know, succumb to being a victim. Um, and it's really easy to fall into that because you can spend so much time wondering why me, why did this happen? Um, you can feel a lot of guilt. You can deal with so many different facets of negative energy around these things, but you have to bring the kind of energy, you know, to get the outcome that you want. Um, so that's. So Megan, one of the things that we shared with you offline that I want to share with our community is that what attracted us to you was that we have not witnessed someone have to go through as many traumatic at least physiological experiences as you, but yet become a leader in the community. And we've, we've watched you, for example, show leadership uh, in the Lyme community on some of Ali Moresco's events. Uh, and, you know, that made us want to interview the superhero because there are very few people that we have seen who have that sort of badass mentality who is taking control of Lyme disease and is the boss over her Lyme disease rather than her Lyme disease controlling her despite surgery after surgery after surgery, despite all kinds of things being taken away from you. And you still very clearly have pursued your purpose of helping others by becoming a leader in the community. So talk to us about how you've gone from uh, being a leader in so many other places to now being a leader in the Lyme community and what inspired you to try to help others despite having so many challenges yourself. So I love helping people. I love like serving my community. I love 
teaching. I love leading. I love developing people. I thought about all these like facets of my career that I really enjoyed. And I thought, okay, how can I bring this to the Lyme community? Um, and so I was really fortunate that a friend of mine had shared with me Ali's information and was like, this is exactly what I feel like you should be doing all this advocacy work and, you know, helping with fundraising, you know, in college, I, um, was really passionate about philanthropy. I was in a sorority. I was a philanthropy chair. I loved, you know, fundraising. I loved helping with anything, um, to give back to the community. And so I was, I reached out to Ali and I was like, what you're doing is exactly what I want to do. Pull me along with you. Um, and it's allowed me to find this purpose. And so I, you know, we've helped raise, um, a little over $50,000 for, um, global Lyme Alliance to fund research for tick-borne illnesses, um, getting involved with center for Lyme action, um, is a great organization to get connected with, to help advocate for legislative change. Um, we got to lobby Congress earlier this year. That was really neat. Um, and so being able to participate in all those things, I also, am, I really love Adina and Lime TV and the work that they do to really educate the public, um, I think is so important. They've got some really great projects in the work to help educate kids because it should be part of public health education. Just like we learn about, um, you know, drugs and alcohol and sex in elementary school, you need to pay attention to the, you know, things that are in your backyard that can really do a lot of damage because kids are outside. I mean, I, I, I'm almost positive. I was probably a bit in my backyard in New Jersey, but never knew. And so, um, so yeah, I'm really glad that I've been able to connect with all these different people who kind of share the same passion for driving change in the community. Um, and, you know, figuring out how can I use the tools in my belt and my skill set to, to help drive change here. So Megan, now I'm going to ask you for help on one last thing. Uh, yeah. You've been really generous with your time and, and I can't tell you how much we appreciate all of that you shared with us and all the, uh, the gold that you've, uh, you've dropped in our community. But we, I have one more request. Yeah. If God forbid your mom came walking into your room right after this podcast and yeah. she had a tick biting her on her leg, what would you recommend that she do so she would not have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? That's a great question. And it's very relevant because I actually had a relative a few weeks ago tell me that they found a tick um, and so I made sure that right away they had a list of different labs that they could send it to. They were luckily, um, smart enough to save it, send it to a lab, get to a doctor right away and get started on antibiotics. Um, time is of the essence with tick-borne diseases, um, understanding that they have gestational periods, they can multiply. Um, you don't want to waste time because it can cause a lot more damage that way. Um, and so I, have had a number of people, you know, I, I find it important to be open about my experience, talk about it. It may annoy people. I don't really care because if I can help one person and prevent them from getting to this place, then that is good enough for me. Um, and I've had a number of people reach out to me over the last couple of years since I've shared, you know, that I was infected with tick-borne illnesses that, you know, someone they know or in their family that they work with, whatever, was struggling. And this is the missing piece of their puzzle because they were able to recognize similarities in their experience and, and something that I've shared. Um, and I am so, you know, passionate about making sure that people have a sense of urgency, um, 
helping them if they can get to a doctor, if I can help refer them to an LLMD, if I can help recommend, you know, if treatment's not an option for them immediately, okay, well, what's easily accessible? What can we start doing to, you know, give you the best outcome possible? And so um, I just, I want to use my story to tell others, you know, this is entirely preventable. Um, you know, there's no reason that at 28, I should be breaking the world record for joint replacements. This is entirely preventable. And so I really hone in on that with people because um, you never know, you can be bit right in your backyard. You can be bit on a hike at the golf course, you know, out at the lake, there's a million different places that this can happen to anybody at any point in time. And so it's just really important to raise awareness um, and, you know, make people have preventative measures. So when they're going outside, they can protect themselves and their loved ones, but also know, um, you know, if something weird starts going on and your doctor can't figure it out, let's make sure you get accurate testing and make sure it's not Lyme. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Megan Bradshaw. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Megan Bradshaw, please visit her Instagram page at mcbradshaw. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, the members of our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.